This week's episode is made possible by our friends at Independent Bank. You can learn more about them at i-bankonline.com. Good morning, Memphis. You're listening to Meanwhile in Memphis on WYXR Radio 91.7 FM. Meanwhile in Memphis is a program dedicated to conversations that celebrate the organizations, initiatives, and people that are shaping Memphis for the better. The Meanwhile in Memphis radio show and podcast are brought to you by New Memphis, a nonprofit organization whose mission is to develop, activate, and retain the city's most important resource, its people. Your hosts today are me, Rebecca Hamm, and my colleague, Anna Thompson. Before we get started, we just wanted to clarify that New Memphis has a very full calendar of exciting events coming up in 2024, and we are super excited to unveil them all very soon. So please stay tuned. And head to newmemphis.org slash events. Absolutely. Beauty may be in the eye of the beholder, but for a building to be at its best, it must also serve a function. Enter adaptive reuse, the practice of reinventing old buildings for new purposes. Adaptive reuse is all about going back to the future, and New Memphis hosted a conversation as part of the Celebrate What's Right uh, event series in October of 23, looking at just that. How is Memphis taking pieces of history, these historic buildings, and breathing new life into them, um, building a better and more exciting future for the city? And some great examples that came out of that conversation were uh, the, of course, Sears Distribution Center that became Crosstown Concourse, the Spaghetti Warehouse that is now the Kimmins Wilson Company headquarters, the recent renovations of Orange Mound Tower and all of the work going on with Tone and Melrose High School, um, which we'll talk about hopefully a little bit with our guests today. Uh, But we're really excited about the momentum that comes out of taking pieces of the city that reflect our community, its culture, our history, and seeing where it can take us from there. Today, we're taking our conversation from October a little bit deeper with Ben Shulman of the Memphis Medical District Collaborative and Devaney Perry of Building Memphis. Ben Shulman is the Vice President of Real Estate and Economic Development for the Memphis Medical District Collaborative, also known as MMDC. Ben has built a career that is deeply rooted in the exploration of place and space. As a writer on architecture, urban planning, and policy, he's been published in numerous big-name magazines and publications. Uh, we'll link some of those in the, sh- the, the show notes. Um, but he's also served as a communications director for the Congress of New Urbanism in Chicago and the American Institute of Architects. Um, these experiences are what brought him to Memphis and to the Memphis Medical District Collaborative. Um, and as the vice president of real estate and economic development, he leads teams that are engaged in rewriting the rules of development. Devaney Perry is the executive director of Building Memphis. She previously has worn many different hats at the organization, including Resilient Communities Project Manager and Director of Advocacy. As executive director, Devaney serves as a bridge builder, a facilitator, and communicator, leading collaborative and catalytic work with members, partners, and community leaders across the city. Devaney has previously worked with the City of Memphis, where her policy research was instrumental in the restructuring of the city's business development services. In addition, she has worked to advance entrepreneurship and business development in the Bluff City by creating entrepreneurial programs. Devaney is an alumni and board member of Girls, Inc. of Memphis. She serves on the Neighborhood Preservation, Inc. Advisory Board and on the Shelby County Mayor's Young Professional Council and was named a member of the Memphis Flyers Top 20 Under 30 Class of 2020. 
She's also an ambassador for Memphis Riverfront Parks Partnerships and president of her local collegiate chapter. Are you ready to bring our guests into the studio? Let's do it. Good morning, Ben and Devaney. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, before we dive into the conversation, we want to get to know a little bit about you and your organizations. Ben, could you give us a quick overview of who you are and what you do? Absolutely. Thanks for having me. My name is Ben Schulman, and I'm the vice president of the Memphis Medical District Collaborative. We are the community development organization for the medical district at large. So a 2.6 square mile area sandwiched in between downtown and midtown to the east. And really what we do is we work with our anchor institutions and community partners to, I always characterize it as stitching together the economic, social, cultural, and built environment fabrics between the institutions and those communities so the entire district is more vibrant, prosperous, and equitable. Collaborative is an appropriate name for what you do. Yes. That's that's, that's fantastic. Devaney, what about you? I'm the executive director of Building Memphis. Building stands for Build, Live, Develop, and Grow. We're formerly known as the Community Development Council of Greater Memphis, and we represent Memphis neighborhoods through our Community Development Association. There, we strengthen community-based organizations that are focused on neighborhood revitalization through some of our capacity building efforts. We are always advocating for investment in neighborhoods as well as investment into these community development organizations so that they can carry out these big grand projects or even these programs that really change the quality of life of the people within the neighborhoods that they're serving. And we also provide uh, support for Memphis residents around public planning, public infrastructure updates that they maybe see going on in their neighborhoods. But it's like, hey, what is this? Who just started digging in the street? And what's happening to this huge building um, that's set here vacant for 20, 30 years. What is now happening? We are able to provide some context at the community level to understand these big planning, uh, this planning field and knowledge base. So we try to make sure that the work that we're doing strengthens neighborhoods across Memphis. So something that you hit on already, Devaney, is um, the term, you didn't say exactly adaptive reuse, but that's what I feel like we have come at New Memphis to call it. So I was wondering if you both could take a stab at what it means to each of your organizations um, that buildings in Memphis don't sit empty. I would say what it means to our organization is that we are adequately equipping Memphis residents to make the changes in their neighborhoods that they see it, they seek after. Um, a really great example, the Works Incorporated, they broke ground on Northside Square. Northside Square is about 270,000 square feet of Northside High School, uh, a school that has been closed for many years, many decades now, but it has a very rich history. Um, so rich a history that even though the school in physical context is no longer in existence, the body of people and the community that it raised and that it built still give reverence to it and they still commune. So having a physical space that represents all that they have become and all that Memphis means to them within this building and this new redevelopment means so much. So that's really what it means to building Memphis is how can we ensure that our spaces represent the quality of life 
of the people in Memphis who have a very high esteem and expectation for what our physical spaces look like and how they represent them. So, Devaney, to expand on that a little bit, it sounds like Building Memphis doesn't come in top down and say, this is what your neighborhood needs. How do you source that information from neighbors? How do we? Um, I would definitely say it's a lot of feedback loops that are happening on at any given time, and they can happen anywhere. We have a community development organization who I know I called them for a project for about four months, and every time I got someone on the phone, they were standing outside of a streetlight engaging community outside of a streetlight and so much happened from that uh that cdc is now they're breaking ground on an accelerate memphis project their heights line um but so much community engagement came from them standing in the middle of the street talking to residents about traffic calming about we don't have a park in this community how can we utilize this physical space to be uh, a, a space of activity and wellness and utilize this in a green space so a lot of the conversations and the feedback loops of building memphis working with community development organizations and community development organizations working with uh residents within their community to understand what are community visions and how do we put capital behind that how do we put programming behind that is there are a lot of feedback loops happening at one given time at building memphis we always say we feel like we're always running (laughs) but in the end it all makes sense (laughs) so in your work there you know you're identifying social needs, community needs, neighborhood needs, but also economic needs. Um, And been a lot of the pieces of Memphis Medical District Collaborative, you have, you know, some residential areas, but you're also dealing with a lot of businesses. You know, what does that mean to have a neighborhood with kind of a dedicated unifying, um, you know, guidance that's coming from MMDC? Well, one of the Important things to remember, and I mentioned that the organization serves a 2.6 square mile area, is that 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 medical district is actually composed of six, seven distinct neighborhoods and a constellation of communities within those neighborhoods. So it's understanding that we may bring a suite of resources that can serve businesses, serve residents, serve all the different stakeholders that we engage with. But the actual conditions and opportunities and the histories and stories that are embedded within those neighborhoods are very, very different. So it takes a nuanced approach to understand, and much of what Devaney is talking about, put an ear to the community to understand what those specific nuances are and what appropriate resources from this body of or toolkit of tools is the best source to be applied Um, And that takes shape in the built environment in different ways, knowing that there are different scales that certain properties offer. So, for example, when you look at the Edge District, where there's been a a large concentration of new business developments over the last few years, the scale there is very incremental. The scale there lends itself to small business development. That may look different in other parts of the medical district, for example, near the Methodist campus at the gateway of Union and Cleveland, where the parcels themselves take on a different character. So that requires a different type of thinking, different uh, orientation towards what economic development strategies might be and attracting certain types of residents, because the scale of the project is going to look different than the scale in other parts of the area. That's really helpful to understand. 
I'm curious about what type of resources you're able to provide. Yeah. So MMDC works across a wide variety of programs. When it comes to economic development, there's a, a lot of market intelligence that goes into these conversations just because we're embedded in this place and our team is out there connecting with neighbors, with property owners, with business owners to really understand what the needs are uh, on both sides of that equation. And uh, that requires a lot of technical and strategic assistance. And then more directly, we uh, have a uh, an array of grant programs. So we have pre-development grant programs, we have improvement grant programs that can go to assist with businesses doing the actual build out of a place as well as helping with the property owner to do improvements to the facade or any sort of activation of how the place meets the street. Um, we do administer through our real estate program some investment capital um, through loan programs and then in partnership with uh, Pathway Lending. Through a, C, uh, through a CDFI, we have a loan investment fund that uh, we partner with them on. And again, it's really taking a step back, understanding what the intention is, what the program is, and then seeing where either we can come in directly with some support or act as a convener to make sure that those projects are supported with, I'll use the word constellation again, with a constellation of partners that can help the, bring the project to fruition. Can you share a little bit about how um, your organizations differ, but also how they're a little alike or maybe how they work in parallel? Stephanie, you can go first. Yes. Uh, I would say we work in parallel adjacent to, but definitely with uh, Building Memphis. We, through our new planning, we have this power with model where we want to ensure that we are working alongside community development organizations and community development organizations are low are working alongside and with community members within the boundary area that being shared within the medical district's boundaries. So building Memphis as a community development association, and we're also we have a membership model. So not all CDCs or community development organizations in Memphis are members of building Memphis. I would, like for them to be um, but that is a self-selection uh, <laughs> but MMDC has been a building Memphis member uh, for many years now since its inception um, going back Tommy Pacello and former directors of then the Community Development Council were working in tandem to really understand how do we ensure that their community development uh, processes and programming that is really focused on the full gamut of what serves a neighborhood, its institutions, as well as its people, and also its economy and market. So within that, we have many members across the Memphis area. And yeah, that's our membership model. Yeah. And I know there's a little bit of two hats that mm -hmm. I can speak to here, being engaged with Building Memphis, then of course, being with MMDC. I think one of the most interesting things is that Building Memphis works comprehensively across the city and is really inculcating this capacity building within CDCs to do the work within their specific geographies. And this was before my time with uh, MMDC and here in Memphis, but I think probably the most tangible results of that, and you can speak to this, Devaney, was Memphis in Madison Heights, which was, when was that exactly? 
that mem fix was in 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, but the first mem fix that they all worked on together was a new face on an old broad back in 2011, 10, 2010. <laughs> new face <laughs> on an old broad. Um, it was fantastic. <laughs> Yes, and now we see what Broad Avenue is. They said at that particular time in 2010, you could take a nap in the middle of the street at noon, and no one would drive down Broad Avenue. They had a pizza place and one other shop and some vacant or underutilized warehouse buildings. And now we have homes all over Sam Cooper. There's not a vacant lot on Sam Cooper anymore. Uh, We also have... uh, apartment buildings, a lot of businesses. They were able to incubate businesses through a program known as MemShop at the time. Mm-hmm. And MemShop and MemFix worked in tandem. So I think there are definitely some programmatic elements of neighborhood revitalization that Building Memphis and our members have worked on together that have lasted in Memphis and have really proven and stood the test of time to determine was this a valuable investment and were and did they encourage investment and livability in an area? And I think we have found that to be true. Yeah, there's this beautiful interplay that seems to be at work where a CDC that's situated in a neighborhood, in a community, sees what's necessary, can tap into building Memphis to understand how they can grow their own capacity to then do these sorts of activations. And then it filters back down, right, where that CDC now has done a Memphis or done something similar, knows what to build in terms of its support systems for the community, and then has this network to exchange those tools. So there's this model of export and import of ideas all across the city. Yes. And we, in 2023, we had a number of Memphis events across Memphis. We've been working with the SBA to really merge community development and small business development. So our community development organizations are part of generating and providing resources and technical assistance for small businesses within their neighborhoods, which are traditionally uh, not necessarily connected to the small business development resources and pipeline of of other parts of Memphis that, but which really remain in the core where we have a lot of different resources for business and incentives and pilots. And so how can we ensure that our neighborhood businesses are aware of that? And then from there, we never wanted them to leave their neighborhoods to grow their businesses. What we did was we had this Memphis event near a abandoned or underutilized commercial space, um, in Whitehaven, it was a Southland Mall. In Fraser, it was a heavily trafficked intersection uh, just off of Watkins or Overton Crossing. Uh, I forget the street. I think Watkins near Overton Crossing. Um, in South City, it was the intersection of Georgia and Lauderdale. Um But yeah, having these events in these intersections, now we have CDCs that they want buildings. Um, they say, hey, these buildings are abandoned they're vacant they may have an owner but let's find that owner and let's see how we can rebuild or build up communities step by step block by block and I think being able to watch that happen across many neighborhoods at one time is something that's really beautiful to watch Um, I definitely want to make sure that we submit the process that's happening now so just like with Broad Avenue 13 years later we can go oh 
look at what's happening on Broad Avenue because it's amazing. It's millions of dollars of investment going on right now um, that incorporates livability, workspace, small business, the full gamut of what a neighborhood needs to economically sustain itself. So much of it, too, is just seeding these ideas mm-hmm. that then can germinate into larger investment. And I think that small seed that's planted by these sorts of activations, by these sorts of collisions of people coming together, is really acting and can act and has acted as a way to reframe the perception of place and unlock some of the inherent value that is stored in these neighborhoods, which really, to get back to the question about adaptive reuse, that is what adaptive reuse I believe is at its core, is looking at the inherent value of these places, how they speak in context to the surrounding history, and repurposing that place that might have a perceived loss of value. So it's in interaction with the neighborhood. And to, you know, keep going in that direction with adaptive reuse, what are some challenges that neighborhoods face in restoring these buildings, preserving these buildings? And then, you know, what are the impactful benefits that come out of that? I know there are some environmental angles, there are some economic angles, but, you know, I'd love to understand kind of the trajectory of, you know, facing those challenges, identifying them, and what can come out of that. I will say um, you have your pros and cons. I would say the biggest piece whenever you are, well, whenever we have seen in the country um, new development is the fear and the possibility of displacement. Um, You have physical displacement of people who are occupants of their space, as well as cultural displacement. Um, And we've seen it happen all over the country. So I think that's something that people are always fearful of because whenever there is new development, it will increase the value of a space, Um, whether it's green space development or any other type of built environment investment. So I think being able to ensure on the front end, what are the, what are the perceived impacts of this development and being able to work to mitigate those impacts or at least have something set in place because we know this will be the impact of it. Um, There have been several community organizations that have utilized the data to track after a new development uh this we had this percent of owner occupancy and now that this development is in place two to five years later we now have this percent of owner occupied uh uh properties those are impacts of displacement so how can we ensure displacement doesn't happen and i think that conversation will always come up and i think it's also a conversation that we need to be prepared to have um it's not a bad conversation to have um who utilizes the space who is the space built for those are all things that people perceive as something is being developed in their community and neighborhood um i think that's why you have to prioritize people over place um to ensure that how development is done can be done with people, but how? And how intentional are we being on the front end? Yeah, I would agree. And I would say 
it's not necessarily people over place or place over people, but the connection between people and place and making sure that when we go, when anyone goes in with any sort of intent, it's reflective of the community and the values within that community to make sure that that place is speaking in context. And when you think about some of the impediments that certainly the program and making sure the program is in alignment. There's a shared language over the design, the use um, with community needs. And then also that there's an ability to execute on the project in a way that creates a broad enough tent for participation and allows for whatever economic development or benefit is realized as a result of that project is equitably distributed as well. Uh, The mechanics of developing an adaptive reuse reuse space can be quite complex as well. And just thinking about how a capital stack is arranged that allows people to execute. So there's only so much creativity that a spreadsheet can understand or someone reading a spreadsheet can understand. And we have a very robust ecosystem here in memphis of financial partners who are willing to do the creative work but that is not necessarily the default way that traditional financing institutions look at projects and an adaptive reuse project uh, opens up a lot of possibilities in terms of financing there are potential grants uh, there are potential historic um, credits that can come into play but it also can be a very, very complicated mix. And that requires uh, a degree of partnership that has to be uh, coordinated and can also be reflective, though, of the multitude stakeholder, multitude of stakeholders that go into the development of a project. That actually directly ties into one of the questions I had about partnerships seeming to be the kind of name of the game in adaptive reuse projects. Um by bringing together individuals and organizations to develop across and then get these developments across the finish line. Um, How do these projects, adaptive reuse projects, specifically create access for community connections? It's a great question. Uh, There's so many different paths, I think, to answer that question. In terms of the development itself, like I was just mentioning, it's going to take typically a variety of capital partners to put together the stack that allows a development team to execute. It also, to Devaney's earlier point, really requires, even before you start thinking about how the capital stack is arranged, what is the program and use of this space? And that requires community conversations. Uh, So understanding who, how, what that mechanism is to bring everyone into conversation uh, to, to realize the best project. So there are also, those are very tangible effects. I think there are also intangible externalities that are resulted or benefits that are resulted from the successful execution of these projects that open up more opportunity for partners and collaborators to come in and utilize the space. Uh, you know, an adaptive, a successful adaptive reuse project basically injects a future forward orientation onto something that is expressing the past of a place. And that is something that is really impactful. And what it does is sends a signal to that community that there's always been inherent value in this place. It is just now being activated and realized for better and new use. 
And I want to answer that question too about the partnerships. Um, to be explicit about the types of partnerships, uh, especially with regard to the capital piece, you will have a traditional bank, although sometimes you might not get a traditional bank because when it comes to adaptive reuse, you are more than likely moving forward to development in a space where traditional banking has not made many developments before. So economically, you have to make that case. So you would have to go to some non-traditional financial partners like a community development financing institution, CDFIs. Um, many across the country are available and they want to learn about these types of projects. You will also have... Um, of course, your government partners, if they have any programs, most of that funding will come from HUD through the federal government, uh, you local government, so and two types of banking. And then sometimes you will also have to engage the philanthropic community uh, for different types of funding that they have or their loan pieces, which also will sometimes come at different interest rates, if any at all, given the types of return on investment. Sometimes philanthropic partners may also take in non-tangible returns on investment, mm. which is different than traditional banking, as well as sometimes CDFIs. They will understand the impact on people a project can have, and they will want to make an investment based off of that impact, and they will attach a monetary value to its non-tangible impact sometimes within the philanthropic community. So the partnerships of developing a capital stack to fund projects like these uh, takes a lot of time. Um, <laughs> it's really simple, it seems like, huh? <laughs> it takes a lot of time and effort. Then you also have the tax credit piece, which yeah. means you now need entire legal teams and um, you need to know where can you access these tax credits. Is it through a CDFI partner? Is it through a government entity? So the partnerships piece and how you put together these, pro these projects um, takes an immense amount of time and effort and know-with-all and mental <laughs> capacity. <laughs> Is there um, an ideal kind of formula for how some of these are created to be successful? Um, kind of looking back over the last maybe 10 to 15 years here in Memphis, it feels like things have been popping up with more frequency. Do you feel like maybe certain partners have gotten the hang of adaptive reuse projects, or do you think it's just the way it is. Maybe it just seems that way because I've been acutely aware in the last 10 to 15 years. Uh, I would say there is somewhat of a formula, but okay. also it depends on the place. Where is this development happening? And are there any other developments, catalytic developments around it that would then generate how quickly you can access the capital. Okay. That um, makes sense. I mean, there was a reason these places sat abandoned for a while. Yes. So you have to be able to, yes. to your point, make that case to, you, you to every to partner the, involved. You would have to make the case. So I think the, I don't want to use words that make this sound easy. The less complex it is. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you've used any words that make it sound easy. I'm going to be honest. <laughs> to make the case could potentially become the formula. But again, I think that's also where partnerships come into play. The more people in Memphis who have this experience to do these projects, it would be our 
hope and expectation that people trust them and they continue to say, oh, where else can we make adaptive reuse investments such as this? Um, and how do we continue to invest in that leadership, um, especially in Memphis, where that leadership is not in the future? I don't see that leadership always being one demographic group It's now expanding to other demographic groups. There are women, there are black women, there are black men that are now really leading adaptive reuse projects. So how does that change the conversation or how does that change the formula? And where are we in ensuring that people have access to capital to get these projects done and that we trust them to get these projects done and we give them the space to do it? So that was actually my next question is how does uh, building Memphis work to create equity in adaptive reuse projects? I would say I'm not sure if we're creating equity. Uh, I think we're just a, a strong proponent and advocate for it. So when one of our partners comes with these projects, we want to ensure that they're able to carry out this project. So what is the technical assistance that you need? What are the connections that you need so that we can ensure that you have all that you need uh, to move these projects forward uh, in the best way? Sometimes that's accessing Urban Land Institute, ULI. They have uh, a wealth of resources, a wealth of people with that experience for these development projects. Um, and many of them are more than accessible and ready to help in any way. Uh, accessing our Building Memphis members that have done these projects and these types of things before, like MMDC, I think they have a, a great history of moving forward or attracting developers to move forward these big projects as well. So just ensuring that we have communications channels assistance channels and ensuring that the knowledge is accessible is how in building memphis we create equity so something devony that you mentioned um a little bit earlier in our conversation was about um, the lasting impact of certain reuse and just certain developments as a whole for example broad avenue and how it has stood the test of time so to speak so i'm curious with both of you about if you could give examples or kind of shed a little light about how some developments aren't meant to last forever. I mean, I feel like in Memphis, we often don't think about that. We think, oh, it's built and it's here to stay forever. Mm -hmm. I expect this restaurant to be here in perpetuity forever and always, i.e. the rendezvous, as Rebecca and I were talking. (laughs) But more often than not, it's more for a season and it can be beneficial and impactful for our city and our community just the same. And so where do you think the kind of consumer expectation is about things lasting it forever in perpetuity, but also understanding the development side of it, that things can be great, but just for a season? Where do I stand on that conversation? Um, I will say I'm pro Coliseum. (laughs) 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 I'm actually in the, the Memphis class of high school graduates that they stopped allowing us to graduate in the Coliseum. For and my high safety. S- <laughs> <laughs> my high school, our, our band would play Pomp and Circumstance for every graduating class during the ceremony. So year before, I'm there playing Pomp and Circumstance. Next year, I'm very excited. Get to wear my cap and gown when I play Pomp and Circumstance and sit in the Coliseum. It nope. didn't happen. No. Nope. <laughs> big fat nope. <laughs> big fat no. So what does it 
what does Memphis? I don't. I can't even get it out. What happens in Memphis if we no longer have a coliseum? Like if they demolish that building, or will we move forward one of the adaptive reuse projects? Uh, that people have been proposing every couple of years, a new one comes along. Mm-hmm. I think I read in the newspaper, there's one in the works now. I want to see it happen because I'm pro Coliseum. But also, I do understand the economic impact of having an empty building that has more irreparable mm-hmm. assets in it than good ones <laughs> that are repairable and that we can. So I, I understand both. Um, both sides of the, the coin, but you know, I'm pro Coliseum, so I guess that's my answer. To <laughs> what the about question. you, Ben? You know, it's almost a question of hardware and software. Ooh. And a hardware should be built to last. So, buildings, places should have resiliency built into them, but they should also have flexibility built into them. And that gets to the heart of this question about consumer yeah. expectation and things that. might be temporary in nature, but can they be woven in as a a sort of liminal space to get people congregating in a place that they might otherwise not have gone to? Incubators very much are like these, where you see uh, small businesses crop up, pop-ups, where they're able to come in, test ideas, test markets, draw people in, and then they quote-unquote graduate to a, a space of their own. But a development should be encoded in place. A development should be something that does have a longer tail than 10, 15 years, because then we don't want to encourage development that has any sort of notion of disposability and that mm. neighborhoods neighborhoods are constantly in flux. New ideas are good things, but a place and change, to use the old adage, is, is the only constant. Uh, You want dynamic places that are always changing. But to think about a development that is temporary in nature, I think does a disservice to uh, really making sure that that signal of the value of a place is broadcast for the long term. Mm, I like that. That's a good answer. Leaves me a lot to think about. Yeah. And, and thinking about some some projects that are investing in the long term, can we talk a little bit about the Greyhound Uh, renovations in Uptown? Yeah, absolutely. So the Greyhound project in Uptown is a uh, adaptive reuse project that will take the old historic Greyhound bus depot, which is currently a mix of uh, storage spaces as well as artist studios. Interesting mix there. Uh, And it will become more than uh, 60 plus residential units. The development team, which is a minority-led development team, uh, is not, when we talk about displacement, none of those uses will actually be displaced because there's a ground-up development just to the south of the existing structure in which the current uses will be accommodated. So they're building that, and then essentially those uses will be moved over. It'll open up the opportunity, though, to inject a degree of density. Housing is needed everywhere in this city. Uh, so residential density coming into the neighborhood making sure that that building uh, remains intact to tell the story, continue to telling the story of that place, uh, and really act as a connective tissue between the pinch and uptown. So we're really excited to see that that project is moving forward. 
And it is also a good illustration of the dedication that development teams need to have when navigating the complexities of adaptive reuse. How does Memphis compare to other cities when it comes to adaptive reuse? Are we leading? Are we on par? Are we trailing? <laughs> well, I wasn't going to say it, Anna. <laughs> I know, sorry. I definitely don't think we're trailing, especially for a city of our size. Uh, I would say that we have some pretty significant flagship projects that the city can point to. Um, I mean, Crosstown alone is a world-renowned example of adaptive reuse and the way that that has been able to be programmed in a way that is in service to and functioning for and of the community. So we have a deeper pool of people who are increasingly versed in how to execute on these projects. Northside is a great example of such. I think Memphis probably punches above its weight a little bit in terms of its size for the degree of and the ambition of the adaptive reuse projects. The last thing I would say on that front, too, is that you have to take a look at the stock that we have to play with as well. And Memphis has a pretty impressive array of building a stock in which to uh, implement these projects. It's kind of funny that the historic preservation moment arose really when the former Penn Station in New York was under threat of demolition and was demolished. Um, That's 60, almost 70 years ago. So the buildings in which people initially rose up against because that was destroying the historic fabric those are the buildings that are now eligible for national register status and we have a great collection and constellation to use that word again as well um, of mid-century modern buildings too so there's a, a good palette for memphis to play with while also encouraging contemporary designs that have to work in concert with adaptive reuse as well yeah but there was a time not so long ago where we were not necessarily a city that was embracing the idea of adaptive reuse. Um, I think it wasn't until the Tennessee Brewery Project, which was another unofficial Memphis installment, but the same group of founders of Memphis, uh, MMDC, Tommy Pacello and uh, the mayor's innovation delivery team at the time. There was a time when we were not embracing the potential and possibility for adaptive reuse in Memphis. And we lost a few really nice buildings. But then also the cost of demolition is so high that I'm pretty sure that kind of gave us the time (laughs) to get to today because we are here today. Um, I will also say there are like Claiborne Temple. Mm -hmm. That was, I also feel like that area was one of the first where we were able to see what the possibility and future of adaptive reuse could be. So we saw Tennessee Brewery and Claiborne Temple. So those are two really great examples of residential space and community use and huge, huge opportunities for adaptive reuse. Uh, So hopefully those will continue to be or will be, if they're not, a model for how we do this work in Memphis um, because Claiborne Temple is a community space and Tennessee Brewery is now residential housing. What do you think changed that kind of narrative? 
that made people start to see things maybe with new eyes in a way? Well, I think it's the compound effect of small investment. And the Tennessee Brewery example is a great illustration of such. That building was due to be demolished. And I forget the name of the event that was hosted there again before my time here, but it was basically it was a beer garden. It was a beer garden. Mm-hmm. And people said, no, we're pe- going to, we're going to hang out here. And mm-hmm. again, thinking about the reforming a uh, reframing the perception of place. If you come into a space that has been denuded of, of the perception of value, but you go in with fresh eyes, you go in and have a different experience, then that all of a sudden opens up with all the imagination and possibilities of what that space could be. And it took an event like that to really recognize not just how the Tennessee brewery could be redeveloped, but how it could also act as a catalyst for the entirety of this corridor that you see all of the development that has come online along front, along South Main, and you don't get that sort of attention and investment without that sort of small place-based increment. I think that reminds me uh, a lot of a conversation we had that was on the the people level with Dr. Mario Brown. Uh, but he said, you cannot be what you cannot see. And I, I think that what I'm hearing a lot of in this conversation is that, you know, these small projects showing possibility is what builds that momentum for us to shape the city in a, a way that we maybe didn't even think was possible. And that's exciting. Yeah. I would recommend many who are interested in adaptive reuse to get involved with Urban Land Institute. They have a one-day activity called Urban Planning, where you are on a team and you... Everyone has a role from developer to communications to the the banker. Someone is managing the finances and you are building a city and you have Ooh. to understand what is the impact of a big box store. Will this take away from the land? Will this take away from your ability to have density? You have to understand where will you put the homeless shelter? Will you remove it from the core of the city or will you keep it there? What type of impact will that have on the land? Um, these are all the questions that with the team, you you really just sit and you have to think through and it no longer becomes theoretical. And it's, it's now you who are making these decisions. Um, how do you build a place and what do you do with these buildings? Do you go with luxury apartments or do you go with a big box store or do you go with affordable units? All of those things come into play um, and you get to actually understand what is happening and what are some of the components that you must think through in order to move forward development at at large scale. It feels like junior achievement, like biz town for like adults <laughs> and like how to build a city, how to like a mock, like how to go through it. That sounds really interesting. Um, something you mentioned earlier, Ben, about how Memphis kind of is swinging above our weight, kind of in that wrestling kind of analogy. I really love and what we've talked to a lot of other people about in Memphis is that our creativity is unmatched here, that we have that that is like our superpower is that Memphis and Memphians have that creative superpower. 
How do you think that that can transform our city in the next 10 years? I would say that it's the culture of a place that allows a place to speak in a particular voice. And that voice is what the competitive advantage is of any given city. And because Memphis does have such a particular culture, is still to this day one of the most significant cultural contributors to the world, that is our competitive advantage. That is what allows people to come into this city or and look at spaces in a different way and conceive of new uses. It doesn't make it any less <laughs> difficult when you think about all of the partners and financing constraints and opportunities that go into developing. But absolutely, culture is the denominator of what drives differentiation and activation of an economy. And that's what we've got. We've got culture. Um, Devaney, you mentioned the urban planning um, day course that Memphis and listeners can be involved in. But are there other ways that Memphians can be involved in the adaptive reuse process or a platform to submit ideas if such a thing exists? Yes, I would say the best way for Memphians to tap into adaptive reuse or any types of projects, I would first start with Memphis 3.0, our city's land use plan. In Memphis 3.0, there are these anchors, and these are more or less intersections where community feel that these are the most essential parts of our neighborhood. Um, these particular places, understanding how they're used now, um, is land available in these spaces or what buildings exist and how those buildings are used or if they're not being used, I think will really be a first step at understanding where these projects have the greatest potential, um, especially within Memphis neighborhoods, because I, I also know that there are so many projects and so many buildings um, that could be a catalytic investment in these neighborhoods just like Northside, um, just like Crosstown, many projects that are happening or in the works right now. But I would say first tap into Memphis 3.0 um, and just take in that information and be creative. Um, what I would like for people in Memphis to do the most is to one, be creative and two, have the greatest expectations of our city and place. Um, if it needs to be something and that is your expectation of the space. Have that expectation and let's work to see how we can meet the expectations of that we set as a community. And I think we can meet them. We just have to allow our creative selves to, to, to guide us. Looking out over the next year, what, what are you excited about? What projects, what energy? Um, I will say being in the community development industry and knowing that our city's leadership is a community developer is really exciting. Um, I'm open to wherever his insight guides us. I'm also talking about Paul Young. I don't know if I... <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I was like... 
Him who? <laughs> <laughs> um, wherever his insights guide us as a city, uh, knowing that he's a community developer, knowing that he sits at the table um, when we discuss neighborhoods and watching him talk to everyone from the old lady who was there and watched Urban Renewal put a intersection or a highway in between her community and neighborhood as well as the new real estate um, investor who wants to do something in this community, knowing that everyone understands and trusts his leadership on both of those sides is something that's really instrumental and is exciting. Um, And I think we're all just waiting to see what happens next. What do you need us to do? Where can we show up? Um, I think that's really great. And I think that's going to change Memphis in the next decade. Um, I believe that change happens over decades. Uh, So that's something that I think I'm excited for. I would echo that excitement. It's unusual that an urban planner by education and trading is a mayor of a city. Uh, It's hard to think of another urban planner that has ascended to that office. I would also say that there's so many projects that are percolating and just seeing how they continue the momentum and new projects that are being floated every day. The Ravine is a great um, repurposing of what was a discarded rail line that is now an accessible uh, linear park. And recently, the Daily Memphian had an article about a proposal called Off the Rails that essentially would be an extension of the ravine, uh, it's at grade, so of course it would not be a ravine. But looking at how that section of the rail line that would extend south of Union down pretty much to Elmwood Cemetery, how that might take shape using that sort of design thinking, though, to think of these interstitial spaces and how those have an attendant effect on some of the development that's occurring in neighborhoods. That's just one example. There are myriad examples, but it's an exciting time in Memphis to see how these projects will continue to evolve. That's exceptionally exciting. And for anyone that wants to get involved with the momentum of these projects, but specifically in your work, how can folks get involved with your organization, support the work that you're doing, be better champions of the city by learning about what you do? Absolutely. So as I mentioned, and we didn't have time to go into the variety and full scope of the programming that MMDC is engaged in, but certainly we do a lot of programming, a lot of events, and working with partners to bring people in to the medical district. So check out our website at memphismedicaldistrict.org. It's a new URL, so I hope I'm getting it correct. Uh, but that, will, that, that lists out... Um, not only the uh, tools in our toolkit to support community development, but all of the events and programs that people can tap into. Great. We'll be sure to link that in the show notes. Building Memphis, we have a big year ahead of us in 2024. Our website is bldgmemphis.org and Building Memphis is also our name on all of the social media sites from Facebook to Instagram. Definitely encourage you all to follow us there. Um, I could definitely see people tapping into Building Memphis as we follow up on many neighborhood investments. We want to go and support our community uh, organizations and really we host different 
forums and different events or different conversations with community within neighborhoods. We have a uh, a long time program called Pizza with Planners where we will pick a topic and we will just have pizza and people will come out and listen to what's happening in urban planning. Um could be a matter conversation. It could be an MLGW conversation. Could be a conversation on urban gardening. Um, all of these different conversations we want to continue to have with community. Sometimes community invites us out. So for 2024, I can see us really hosting um, and trying to build out our learning communities as well because we want to continue to grow the leadership and the knowledge base of neighborhood revitalization neighborhood revitalization across Memphis neighborhoods and communities so I definitely encourage anyone who's interested um, in anything land use related community related and within a Memphis neighborhood to reach out to us at Building Memphis because we would love to help provide direction and support. So, Devin, to expand on that just a little bit, um, you know, there are a lot of players in supporting this work from funders to policymakers um, and thinking about a new administration that's coming in. We don't have to, you know, talk specifics about specific elected officials, but just kind of in the global sense, what from the government realm or policy realm could support your work differently? I would say... Memphis, we may be absent of good policy with regards to land and land values that will allow us to do this work. A lot of communities have not seen investment and development in decades. And because of that, the value of their land has dropped so that it doesn't allow us to really create the financial capital uh well, to encourage the financial capital to do these types of big reuse projects. So that's typically sometimes why we see so many blighted large buildings in our neighborhoods and communities, because we are absent good policy that allows us to have land values that we can continue to grow. And it could be a part of these capital stacks that we're building to create these economic projects. I completely agree. And I think some of it is looking at how land itself is valued and taxed. So, for example, in the city of Detroit recently, the Duggan administration has been able to implement what's basically a land value tax, which is a different way of looking at basically property taxes are regressive because they tax the improvements made upon land. But land is where scarcity is really stored. So it acts as a way to discourage speculation to encourage density where density is appropriate and really to catalyze projects where things may have been stalled or sitting vacant prior. So looking at things like a land value tax or vacancy tax, which is somewhat related, but looking at buildings that are still existing but sitting there blighted. Uh, but then also thinking about the creation of other sorts of funding mechanisms. So looking at and I'm just spitballing ideas here, right? But like a localized historic preservation fund that can go towards supporting the capital stacks and development of these projects that are utilizing adaptive reuse as the method to revitalize places. Thank you both so much for taking the time to join us. And we are excited to see all that you do in 2024. Thank you. Thank you for having us. 
Independent Bank is celebrating 25 years of sharing your stories, building your dreams, and serving you heroically. Find out how iBank can help you achieve your financial dreams at i-bankonline.com. Member FDIC.